Well, good morning. How are you today? You guys doing all right? All right, question. Who never went to bed last night? Yeah. Well, an hour? It's going to be a long day. Are you guys excited for today? Are you ready for what's in store? All right, well, like I said last night, for chapel, we're going to be covering the story of Daniel. It's an incredible story. And sometimes when you hear people like teaching the Bible use the term story, it kind of in your head makes you think of like movies and other stories that you've seen depicted. But when I use the term story, I'm talking about history. Daniel was a real person 2,600 years ago who lived who went through the events that we're going to be reading throughout the book of Daniel that you're also going to see depicted on screen. Like, what we're about to read happened. Daniel was a real person. And so last night, as we unpacked this concept of Daniel being in exile, what that means is there was a real person named Daniel who was ripped from his homeland, forced to join an army under a new king and a new general, whose laws and way of life went against everything he stood for. We can learn a lot from that. And so what I want you to do is I want you to open up to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read through the rest of Daniel 1 and see what God has to say to us today. Daniel 1, when you're there, hold your Bible up in the air so I know. Yeah, you guys are good. All right. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it for you. And it goes like this. We're going to start at verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. It says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he named Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. If that sounds familiar, it's because we read it last night. Here's the parts we haven't read. It says, Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men, um, with that of the young men who eat royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier, better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered into the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king questioned them, 
He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in this whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for our first full day at camp, for all the fun that's yet to be had, for all the deep conversations yet to be had. Lord, for moments like we had in worship this morning where we get to just sing to you because of your goodness and your holiness. God, we pray for this week that you would set it apart, that this would be a week that just transforms all of us who are here participating in it. Teach us from Daniel 1 this morning. Help us to understand you better as a result of us opening up these passages today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, like I said, what we're going to look at this morning is a little bit more of the person, Daniel, who this guy was. Daniel is regarded in a lot of ways as a hero of the Old Testament, but there's one thing that set Daniel apart, and you're going to see this as a theme throughout the coming days, and so I want to point it out now. Daniel knew who God was. Daniel knew who God was, so much so that him knowing God transformed the way that he chose to live his life. Have you ever been in a situation where you were around someone that you didn't know, only to realize later that it's someone who you actually had known quite well? Like maybe, maybe there's a moment at school where you're acting a fool, and then later that day you become best friends with the person that you were being silly with. I had a moment like this at a Lakers game a couple years ago. Whatever bandwagon Warriors fans. All right, here's the deal. A few years ago, tags are still hanging off your hats. Uh, Here's the deal. When, uh, just before 2020, so like November of 2019, my friend Bobby called, and Bobby calls, and I go, what's up, Bobby? And he goes, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, I don't know. What are you doing tonight? He's like, I got four tickets to a Lakers game. Do you want to go? It didn't matter what I had on the calendar. I'm going to that game. So Bobby, myself, and two other friends jump in a car. We drive down to L.A. to the Staples Center, and we go to a Lakers game. It was incredible. Why? Because the Lakers were playing the Warriors. I love the Lakers. I respect the Warriors, but I hate Draymond Green, okay? And so so we're there, and these seats that we got, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm going to brag, they're like nine rows behind the Lakers bench. Like, I can see sweat coming off the back of LeBron James's head. Like, it was, it was that close. I felt very spoiled. And for that reason, free tickets, free really good seats, I go a little crazy. Right? I, I have been known to be a little obnoxious when rooting for a team. You can ask any of my kids at their basketball and baseball games. I'm the parent who's, like, yelling at the umpire, yelling at the referees, calling plays. The coaches are like, you're not a part of this. Just sit down and be quiet, please. And so I had decided that for all four quarters at this Lakers game, whenever Draymond Green got the ball, I was going to yell at the top of my lungs, Draymond, you stink! And so that's what I did for four quarters. And it it turned into a thing where all the people in the crowd around me and this woman who was sitting, like there's an aisle here, sitting here, was just laughing. We're all having a good time. Every time Draymond would like brick or airball, we'd high five. Well, after halftime... I let one out so loud, no one else around me did. And it was a moment where the stadium was quiet. In my head, everyone had just heard what I said. 
And no more than 10 seconds later, they're like, guys who wear the jackets with the earpieces start walking up the stairs. And I have this moment where I'm like, uh oh, what if they're coming to talk to me? Sure enough, they were. They come up to me and go, sir, can you please come with us? And I'm like, whoa, 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 sorry. You know, like immediately like broke. We'll do it again. And they're like, you got to come with us. So they take me up the stairs into this little private security room. And I'm just like, I've gone too far. The joke is not funny. You know, Draymond's going to want to fight me. I could probably take him, but I don't want to embarrass him in front of his friends. You know, like, what's going to happen here? And so the guys go, listen, we personally love what you're doing because we're Lakers fans, but there's an issue. The issue is this game is being televised on ESPN. And so every time you do your chant, the only thing people sitting in their living rooms can hear is you bad-mouthing Draymond Green. And normally we wouldn't care, except Draymond's manager is the person sitting two rows in front of you. And his job is to make sure Draymond Green's image is maintained and positive. And I was like, well, that's Draymond's problem, not mine. Like, he just shouldn't suck at basketball, I guess. I don't know. What do I have to do with that? And they go, we just kindly have to ask you to stop. And I was like, done. Won't say it again. So they walked me back to my seat. It was like that moment, if you've ever been in the principal's office, like all my friends are like, oh, my gosh, what happened? Did they give you a slap on the hand? Like, what's going on? I was like, I can't talk about it. And so for the rest of the game, we cheer. Of course, the Lakers win, but the game came down to the last minute of action. And in the last minute, Anthony Davis sinks a three-pointer to win the game. All the people around me are high-fiving. The woman that was sitting across the aisle from me turns to me, gives me thumbs up, we high-five. I look back down at the Lakers bench, and I would have put my life on it that LeBron James is doing this to me. And so I do it back to him. Like, I might go to the after party. Like, this is the best day ever. And as soon as people started to leave the arena, the woman that I was sitting next to stands up, goes down to the Lakers bench, and gives LeBron James a big hug and a kiss. And it was in that moment that I realized I had been acting like an utter fool, a complete idiot, sitting 30 inches away from LeBron James's wife for an entire basketball game. Still kind of proud of myself. Like, that's the closest I've ever been to being on TV. Uh, I got home and friends were like sending me clips like, we heard you yelling at the game. I was like, I'm famous now. Like, this is hire an agent, maybe Draymond's agent wants to call me, I'm not really sure. What's the point of my story? Here's the point of my story. Sometimes, in these settings, when we're at camp, talking about God, I can't help but wonder if we don't fully realize who it is we're talking about. Sometimes at camp, you're ushered into a room, you sing worship songs, a guy gets up and tells weird stories or funny stories or whatever, reads Bible verses to you, and by the end of the week, we collectively have gotten closer to God. But that can only happen if you know who God is. As I said earlier, Daniel's entire trial in Babylon is marked by him knowing God. And so the challenge I have for you this morning is this. Do you know God? Do you know who God is? 
Because it will be really difficult for us to learn more about who God is if we don't first start by looking at the person and character of the God of the Bible, okay? And so jump back into Daniel 1 with me, and I'll explain exactly what I mean right now. Daniel 1, what happened? Well, we see, and we talked about this at length last night, that Daniel and his friends have been taken into exile. Part of that exile was a new diet that they were supposed to be eating. The issue for Daniel and his friends is that they're Jewish. And Mosaic law says that you can't just eat and drink anything that you want to eat and drink. In fact, there's a very strict set of rules around diet. And so when the new menu comes out, for all the people in King Nebuchadnezzar's military, Daniel and his friends realize, oh, we have a problem. We cannot participate in what is being asked of us because it would defile God. It would go against who God is and the way that he's asked and chosen me to live this life. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are given their first opportunity to remain faithful to God or to compromise. And so as we read this morning, you'll see in verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel didn't want to defile God. Now that word defile may seem like an odd term to you. Here's what defile means. Sin. Daniel didn't want to go against who God was in his life. Daniel was given an opportunity to compromise, but the value and the place that God had in the life of Daniel made him go, I can't do that. What do you know about compromise? Think for a second about the word compromise. Anytime we're put in a situation where we're forced to choose between what we know is right and anything else is an opportunity for us to compromise. I think the best example of compromise comes around New Year's resolutions. Have any of you ever made a New Year's resolution before? What was your New Year's resolution? Um, to get involved in, in theater. Love it. Yeah. Yep. Play volleyball. Hang on. Someone else is talking. Where is it? Volleyball. We had volleyball. Yep. Just yell at me. It's fine. Play more sports. Play more sports. Love it. Okay. What about right here? Being better at math. Love it. Let's do like two more. Yes, guy whose friend is forcing his hand up in the air. He wanted to be more quiet. He's doing a good job. Okay, and then right here. Yeah, stop popping. How are you doing with that? How are you doing it not popping your knuckles? Yeah, he's doing it right now. That's exactly my point. So the best example and illustration I could give you for compromise is whatever it is that you resolve to do if you participate in, the, in that at New Year's. Right, like for me this year, I was like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get healthy, I'm gonna get in shape. And for three months, I kicked butt. I was down like 20 pounds, my clothes were fitting good, and then we went on vacation. And those nachos by the pool looked so good. And that pina colada was perfectly sweet. And I'm just sitting there like, well, I'll just pick it back up when I get home. Well, vacation ended in April, and I'm still eating nachos, right? Like, that's compromise right there. Here's what Daniel didn't do. Daniel chose not to compromise. Daniel chose to honor God because Daniel knew who God was. Now, there's a difference between knowing who God is 
and knowing a lot about God. Let me say that again, because it's kind of a big thought. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And I think the danger of your generation, the danger for those of you who spend a lot of time in youth group or go to private Christian school, the danger for those of you who are really active in the Christian clubs on your campus, the danger is that we replace intimately knowing God and having a deep relationship with him with simply knowing a lot about him. Daniel didn't just know a lot about God, but Daniel drew strength and resolve and resiliency because he knew who God was. And so I'll ask you the same question I started with. Do you know who God is? Do you know who God is? Last night we touched just briefly on a little bit of God's character. We looked first in Genesis 1 that God is the supreme, ultimate creator, maker, and author of life. And if God is able to speak things into existence, then that means God is removed from our paradigm and our reality. God is above that. That means God is all-knowing. That means God is caring. We touched briefly last night on the fact that God is loving. God is able to be these things because of one word. And the word is holy. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you will. So here's where Isaiah is. If you're in Daniel, hang a left, a couple books. Okay? And you're going to get to Isaiah 6. And this is another prophet named Isaiah who has an encounter with God that's going to help us know more about who God is to hopefully help us know God better. Okay? Daniel chapter 6. I want you to turn there. Or sorry, Isaiah chapter 6. Just confusing everybody. Isaiah chapter 6. All right. So I just want to be real clear before I read these verses. We were in Daniel. Okay? Daniel was a prophet. We're now in Isaiah. Isaiah is a different prophet slightly different times. So I just don't want you to go back to your cabin and be like, wait, where did Isaiah come from? We're just reading a couple verses from a different book to see where Daniel draws this faith from as we journey through his his kind of story this week, okay? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, "In In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Pause. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, tells us a couple things about who God is. I want you to pay attention to them. First thing, Isaiah's memory is marked by the fact that this is the year that his king died. Think about what marks this year for you. Maybe it's the year you started middle school. Maybe it's the year you're going into eighth grade. Maybe it's the year you made the all-star team. Maybe it's the year you re-picked up gymnastics. Whatever the thing is. Isaiah's going, I remember this moment because I remember what happened that year. Camp has the ability to do that for you. Like whatever it is that God does in your life, in your heart, in your mind this week, it's the year that you went to Hume SoCal for middle school camp. Then he says, that year I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah has this moment where he sees God. And what are the two words that he uses to describe the throne that God is sitting on? What are they? It's there. You've got, some of you said it. Say it again for me. What are the words? So picture a throne for a second. 
If you walked in and saw a throne, and I'm not talking about a toilet, okay? I'm talking about a throne that kings and queens would sit on. If you walked into a room and saw a throne that was high and exalted, what would that tell you about the person who sits on that throne? Just yell it at me. Okay, maybe, maybe gone. I have no idea what you're saying. Right here. High command, yeah. Well, let's just do it this way. If there's a big throne, how big is the person who sits on the throne? Big. So we're not talking about your average king. We're not talking about your average size throne. We're talking about a God who sits on a big throne. And then he goes on to say, check this out. He goes on to say, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you know what a train is on a robe? I want you to just picture, if you've ever been to a wedding or, you know, whatever, you see someone in a gown, it's that fluffy part that hangs off the back of the robe, of the gown or the dress. And the purpose of that is to keep people, like, away from behind you, right? Like, if someone were to step on that, you would trip and fall. And so the purpose of the train of a robe is to keep distance between this person who is special, who is high and exalted, and everyone else. But how does Isaiah describe the train of God's robe? How does he describe it? What does it say in your Bibles? Be confident. What does it say? It filled the temple. And if this temple is big enough to hold a giant throne, and the robe has a train on it that's so big it fills the temple, what are we learning about God in this passage? He's big. He's big. It says above him were seraphim. These would be like angelic type creatures. And each of them had six wings. I love this verse because it kind of destroys the like Christmas angel, you know? It's just like the person with the whitest skin and the golden hair flying around. No, no, no. The Bible describes it this way. That these seraphim, these angelic beasts, have six wings. And it tells us that with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying... And with two, they covered their faces. And so what we learn is that this big temple with this big throne and this God who's wearing a big robe is also being worshipped by these angelic creatures who are covering their feet and their faces and they're flying around. And as they do so, it tells us that they were calling to one another, singing a song. And the song that these angelic beings are singing is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah pops in on this heavenly worship gathering, and as he gets in there, he sees things that are just blowing his mind. It's not just the size of the throne. It's not just the size of the robe and the train of the robe. It's not even these like gnarly angels that are flying around singing songs to God. The thing that stands out to Isaiah in this moment is the song that they're singing. And the song that they're singing holds the deepest truth about who God is. The song that they're singing is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Did did you capture the essence of that song? The essence of that song. 
The subject of that song is God. And the words that these angels used to describe who God is in this big temple with a big throne and a big train on a big robe is that God is holy, holy, holy. Now that word has been used for a lot of things. And so the meaning of that word may go over your heads. But the original intended purpose of the word holy can only apply to God. Because the word holy means set apart. Means nothing and no one like. And so when Isaiah begins to use the word holy, as he's repeating the lyrics to this song, he doesn't just say, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The angels aren't just singing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. They're using holy three times. Why? Because they want everyone within earshot to know that this God, who's being worshipped and praised in this moment, is holy, holy, holy. That means he is so set apart. That means there is nothing and no one like him. That means not even the greatest person on earth can compared to how, be compared to how wonderful and perfect this God is. That means the most beautiful sunset, or the most perfect day at the beach, or your favorite trip to the zoo, seeing the most like radical and incredible animals, does not compare to the picture that's being painted about who God is here in this moment. There's a theologian. He died a couple years ago. But he has this incredible, incredible quote about this passage. And I want to read it to you. His name is R.C. Sproul. And he says this, that the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his glory. What that means is God is able to be loved because he's holy. God is able to be forgiven because he's holy. God is able to be caring because he's holy. God is able to be savior because he's holy. God is able to know you deeply. There's 8 billion people in the world, and the Bible teaches that God knows you. The psalmist would say that he knows when you stand, he knows when you sit, and he can discern your thoughts from afar. Who, who is it that has the power to do that? It's a God who's holy, holy, holy. Friend, Daniel understood this about God's character. And so when Daniel was given an opportunity to do something that would go against what he knew God wanted for him, he kindly said no. Daniel didn't care in that moment about fitting in. Daniel didn't care in that moment about peer pressure. Daniel didn't care in that moment about what others thought of him because Daniel knew that this God who is holy, holy, holy deserves all of me. You are going to be faced with situations in your life where you're given an opportunity to do what you know is right in light of a God who is holy, 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 or to do what you know is wrong. The question is, what will you choose? For Daniel and for his friends, he chose to do what the Bible describes as fear God. Fearing God doesn't necessarily mean that we're scared of him like a horror movie. To fear the Lord means to understand and revere 
That is to say, to have respect for the character and nature of who God is. And if there's one thing I want you to be encouraged with this morning, it's that your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of living right in light of who God is and the way he's asked you to live, has so much more eternal impact than you feeling ashamed because your friends are going to tease you for giving in to peer pressure in this moment. Or let me say it more simply. When given the opportunity to honor God or give in to what you know is wrong, this may temporarily make you feel better, but in the long run, it's going to pull you away from God. In the long run, it's going to shrink the view of God in your life. And eventually, you're going to get to a point where God has no place in your life because the decisions and actions that you've chosen have shrunken who he is. Daniel's view of God was big. Daniel's view of God demanded that he remain obedient to the things that he knew God had asked of him. Daniel's view of God is what gave him the faith and the resolve to remain faithful while he was in exile. Who is God to you? The book of Proverbs, it's right after the book of Psalms, chapter 1, verse 7, said that, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means having a high view and a high place for God in your life is the beginning of what it means to live right. Because that big view of God is going to frame every decision that you choose to make throughout the rest of the days that you have here on earth. Be like Daniel. Daniel had a big view of God. And the stakes for Daniel were so much higher than they are for us. Daniel wasn't facing being shamed, being canceled, being teased, not having friends. Daniel was facing death when he made this decision. But his view of God warranted that he be obedient regardless of what others thought. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that we can talk to you. I am just dumbfounded after unpacking that passage in Isaiah, that God who is holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his glory, that God, you're so big and perfect and beautiful and set apart, yet you still let us talk to you. You still let us be with you. You still let us worship you. You still give us good things like a week at camp. God, would you help us to have a bigger view of who you are in our lives? Would you help our view of you to grow this week so that our lives would be transformed through wanting to live holy as you are holy? We love you so much. I pray that you would use this word this morning, these Bible verses that we've read, plant it like a seed in the hearts and minds of these students and help it to grow into a tree that bears faithfulness for all their days. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.